forever. Dog. Hey everyone, you're listening to the Writers Panel podcast. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. On this podcast, we talk about the business and process of writing mostly television with mostly television writers. My name is Ben Blacker. I'm the creator and host of this show. I myself am a television writer and a writer of other things. You may have seen my name on Supernatural, on Puss in Boots, as well as some other series. Most recently, you can find the Audible original series Cut and Run, which my writing partner and I have written. It's about the relationship woes of best friends who happen to be kidney thieves. It's available at audible.com slash cut and run. Thank you for listening to the show. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review on iTunes. That's always very helpful for us. Also, please follow me on Twitter at Ben Blacker, like the color, only more so. And let me know who else you would like to see on this show. What are you watching on television? What's getting you excited or inspired? And we'll try to get those creators or at least someone from the show to talk about TV because that's what we love to talk about. I need to thank a bunch of folks who were very helpful to me recently in putting together lists and lists of potential guests for this show. They culled through Deadline and found out what pilots had been picked up or been just bought. And so we were able to put together these lists of future potential guests. So thanks to Lavetta Cannon, who is not just uh, a very helpful person, but a lovely person. Uh, Louisa Macaron, who I had the pleasure of teaching some years ago in a workshop, who is a great writer. Check out her stuff. Uh, get in touch with her on Twitter in order to do that. Julie Sparlin, thank you so much. Casey Bischel, who went above and beyond, creating an enormous template for everyone to work off of. These are hopefully all of the people who helped me in this endeavor, and I really appreciate it. It was a lot of work to undertake, uh, and I could not have gotten through it without you. And it's because of you that we're going to have more guests on this podcast. So thanks to all of you. Here's a theme song. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm going to... Uh, this is a killer roundtable. I'm thrilled to have you, you all here. Um, I'm going to ask you to go around and introduce yourselves on the microphones. So the listener knows what your voice sounds like, starting with you, Mark. Uh, hi, this is Mark Frost, um, novelist producer screenwriter take take some former credit. ball tell, player tell the folks where they may have seen your name <laughs> um, on their television uh, screens. i began my career in the 70s at universal with the six million dollar man yeah and um three years on hill street blues in the 80s then co-created twin peaks in the 90s and uh, started to move out of television in the aughts um did a last a few last shows but now focus primarily on screenplays and novels Hi, Harley Payton. Um, met Mark on Twin Peaks, obviously. Uh, my second job was writing Lesson Zero, the movie. So that was a while ago. That's crazy. I'm really just more of a survivor at this point. <laughs> I've not left television. A friend of mine actually said, you know, they should do a thing at the WGA, and you could be an example of how an old person can actually continue to work. Oh, and no. I thought, I don't know if I want that to be my brand. <laughs> so I, of course, said no, but I feel sort of like that now. But it's um, it remains a thing that I love to do and a great way to uh, make a living. Uh, and are you working on the Child's Play series? I'm working on Chucky, yes. that is. I was just That's talking so to Mark cool. about that. It's really, it's yeah. even cool 
cooler than I think people expect. Yeah, that's what um, I heard. I knew Don Mancini from Channel Zero. We can talk about that. Oh, of but, course. And Channel yeah, Zero is a great show too. Really fun. Uh, yeah, yeah. and Nick Antosca kind of supervised it. Yeah. So it's um, I think it's going to be quite surprising for a lot of people and cool. really cool. Yeah. Can't wait. Do you, you don't have a timeline on that yet. I know you guys have just started. No, yeah. I mean, we're we just broke the fifth episode. Yeah, so, so. it's very early going. Next, very year, early going. Yeah. Um, Stephen. Hi, my Hi. name is <laughs> Stephen Canals. Uh, I started off on a freeform show that sadly only lasted one season called Dead of Summer, um, but I had an amazing opportunity to work with uh, Kitsis and Horowitz on that. And most recently, I'm the co-creator as well as a writer, director, and producer on the FX drama series Pose. No big deal. MBD. <laughs> <laughs> um, I told you I wanted to start with Sort of the experiences you had early on, and and Stephen, I think you know you're still having. I imagine you're in what your third season of Pose now. Correct. Um, so I imagine like that first season must have been a huge learning curve. So we'll we'll touch on that in a sec. But um, learning from the people who had done it before, learning from the people who had been in this business. I mean, it's, I guess it's a good time in your life to be retrospective and <laughs> and to be looking back. But I really did see how the education fell into place. Oh, that's and, great. Uh, beginning with those years you referenced at Universal, mm-hmm. coming fresh out of college at a time when Universal was producing, if I have the stat right, 33 hours of prime time huh. a, uh, a week at a time when there were only, I think, 66 yeah. hours being produced for the whole industry. Yeah. So wild. it was like the the heyday of hollywood i mean the first time on uh steven bochco was my mentor right um right. but yeah i did want to talk specifically about hill street blues yeah. and you know you're coming in there as a young writer were you there and I'm, I, so I'm sorry i don't know were you there from the first season uh no the first season was uh, a, a mid-season replacement oh, uh was only that. i think nine or ten episodes and it made uh, a, a significant splash critically mm-hmm. They came back. Their second season was delayed by a strike, one of the strikes that uh, we've all been through. Um, So um, the second season was also abbreviated. So I was supposed to come out for the second year. That um, got delayed, and then I started with them full-time in the third season. Okay, so they were up and running, and you know, we're talking about Botchko running the show, who was who in many ways we can credit with inventing modern television. I, I think um, between that's Hill Street Blues and NYPD Blue, like he sort of set the template for what TV is these days and would become. Um, this must have been an enormous crash course for you. Well, it was. I mean, uh, you know, I'd had those few hours of Universal in my back pocket, but that had been five years earlier. And this was uh, team writing, room writing at a level that uh, I think has very seldom been matched. I mean, um, the, the firepower in that room between David Milch and Tony Yurkovich and yeah. Jeff Lewis and Michael Wagner and on and on. We had um, some pretty uh, high octane folks. And uh, it reminded me, it, it, there's no correlation in terms of the subject matter, but they always reference your show of shows, you know, the, mm-hmm. the Larry Gelbart, sure. um, Mel Brooks, Woody Allen, the, yeah. all that group of great comedy writers in the 50s. This was similar in a way but we weren't writing jokes. We were just cracking them in the room and it was very competitive. I mean, you literally had to be on your toes and you had to be able to contribute. Um, yeah. What was it, the tenor in the room? Like you hear about that kind of competitive situation with comedy, especially, yeah. but I don't hear it a lot for a drama, especially at the time. There, there was a tendency to uh, 
you know, you know how it works. You, you throw something out and you kick it around and people pile in and they make suggestions and they form and reform. Here it was like everybody was trying to top the person before. Hmm. Hmm. And when you've got David Milch in the room operating at, at you know, full mag capacity, um, <laughs> it was pretty crazy. I mean, because David was, you know, he was a hundred people in one and um, he would always drive the conversation. Uh, Jeff had been his, I think, roommate at Harvard. So they went back a long way and he was a JD who had the legal background. Um, so he was very grounded in that uh-huh. way. Stephen was the Potter Familius who was there to like break ties and, and uh-huh. um, <laughs> keep people in order. And and everybody else just had to fill in as they could. Yeah. Um, but uh, Milch was uh, uh, an idea machine. Like It was like working with a machine gun. And... Uh, 50-50, it was going to be a, a great idea, so you you would go with it. But it, it could get very heated at times because sure. that's the, the nature of the room. Did you? How did you find your place in it as a new writer? Uh, cautiously at first. You're, huh. You know, you're trying to find, uh, how do I fit in? I, I, I had a strong sense later that this was sort of graduate school for me, that this I was mm-hmm. there as an apprentice writer. By the grace of having known Stephen for ten years and having had him be my mentor earlier, um, so you had to be ready. It was like you know, I was used to baseball analogy. When they, when it was time to pinch hit, you better come through. You know, sure. you didn't get that many at bats at first, so you had to be ready, and you you had to you had to perform. It's a performative business, so um, it could be tense, um, and it demanded a lot of you, and it was very demanding in terms of time we were hmm. doing 22 to 24 hours a year yeah that's so right. we began in june and we ended in april <laughs> yeah it's a different um, world and just to sort of and, and again like i would tell people go go find the books i'm sure you yeah. get deep on this stuff but to sort of uh put a cap on on that era a bit i imagine you know the answer to what did you learn there is everything um, yeah. But do you remember stuff that you specifically brought with you to subsequent jobs? Well, I learned a lot from Stephen about leadership and about how to run a show and yeah. what it requires of you. We're running a show, as we all know, is a, a really demanding job. It's not for the faint of heart or the those who lack stamina or resolve or will. Um, and you've got to be a psychologist, too, because you're, you're dealing with everybody from grips to actors to... Um, uh, directors who were flying sure. in, you know, on a semi-weekly basis. So uh, that's probably the biggest takeaway mm-hmm. I took. And I, I also learned the mechanics of how do you break stories? Mm-hmm. How do you uh, train a writing staff? How do you get them kind of inured in the culture of the show that you're making and then can rely on them to come back and give you what you need to put it together? Hmm. Well, let's let's zero in on that part of it. And Harley, you can speak to this as a writer on Twin Peaks. Uh, you learned under mark yes i did uh i'm sure many of these things you know that, that had now been passed on from Botchko, but like that idea of steeping your writers in the culture of the show um letting creating that target for them do you remember what that experience was on twin well, peaks and how you yeah, guys I mean, started the, to understand what, what the i show really was? remember is mark because we were friends calling me up and saying do you want to come see this pilot i did uh-huh. and imagine being in a, in a world where there's no internet to tell you exactly <laughs> what it was in advance and know everything already about it and i went you know to the director's guild I yeah. think it was. Yeah. and after the screening i realized that i had to beg and so i went to mark and said look i've never done tv <laughs> but any shot i can have at doing an episode which he then 
gave me. Um, but it was, it's interesting because there wasn't really a writer's room on Twin Peaks, right? There wasn't a room where we all sat around and threw ideas around. Mm-hmm. What you were really more likely to do, particularly in the first season, but the second two, was to sit down with Mark and go through an outline and go through stories and go through ideas. And you had a lot of latitude in terms of what you might write within certain scenes and, and something sure. that I really loved doing. But it was really more about watching the show at that point certainly come out of Mark's head and you would take it back to your office and do the best with it that you could. Um, but it wasn't the kind of writer's room that I've been you know, doing in the last several right. years. Um, it was different. As in every case, Twin Peaks was a different experience. Sure. Well, and, and let me ask you, Mark, uh, before we move on, and, and we'll dig in more on this uh, uh, as we go on, but did you know going into Twin Peaks that this was going to be a a show that was treated differently? You couldn't make it in the same way you made other network television. No, and we had uh, laid down the the law uh, pretty uh, succinctly with ABC from the jump mm-hmm. that we, we we weren't going to accept notes. Oh, really? That we just said, <laughs> I mean, it helps to have, you know, yeah, David that. in the room with you. Mm-hmm. The, the pilot, I remember Chad Hoffman, who was the head of development, took a uh, like a little list of notes out of his pocket, said, I thought we've got some notes on the pilot we thought we might share. <laughs> and David said, uh, no, don't bother. <laughs> very friendly. It was a different time. And he said, okay. And he put it back in his pocket How and funny. we never heard from them again. I mean, they, they had standards and practices notes, but they did not have any input into the, the making of, or the, or the narrative or That's so anything. So, um, and well, let's, we'll pick up here yeah. in a second. Um, Steven, I sort of want to ask the same question. You know, you've had this season with Kitsis and Horowitz working on Dead of Summer, which was such a fun show. And those are such good guys to learn from. Um, but then you become the co-creator of this Ryan Murphy show, um, which it's your show too, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you start to find your place in the conversation, in shaping story, and shaping the way that the show is made? Yeah, it was. It was a, it's been a fascinating experience. You know, Ryan in in his mentorship is he's one of those individuals who he'll pull up a chair beside him and say, sit right here, pay attention, (laughs) just soak it all in, Mm -hmm. you know, be a sponge. Um, And, and then at some point he just kind of pushes you, (laughs) you know, you're (laughs) in a pool and then you're in the deep end and he's like, just flap your arms. You'll figure it out. You've been watching me do it. You got it. (laughs) So at what point uh, was that during the first season for you? Mm Mm-hmm. Interesting. And what happened? How did you do? And and how is the show written? Like I, I talked to the American Horror Story folks a while ago, and it seems like most of his shows are sort of written by the group. Um, and, and it's a great experience for everyone. Is Pose the same way? Uh, it is. Yeah. Okay. I mean, we have a very small writer's room. There mm-hmm. are only five of us, in, oh, including great. Ryan and I. Um, so it really is a true brain trust. Yeah. I think to go back to your early question about finding my voice and in and, and working with Ryan mm-hmm. and with Brad Falchuk. Yeah when we first decided to to work on Pose together, I benefited from having written that draft when I was working on my MFA at UCLA. Mm-hmm. You know, and I grew up in New York City in the 80s in the midst of both crack and AIDS epidemics. And so it, it was my world, you yeah. know, it was my world. It was, it, it was my story. And so it wasn't, it was intimidating to be working with the two of them, mostly because I still felt like an, impo- an imposter. Sure. You know? Um, how did I get from being a staff writer to now being an executive producer on a show? You know, like in yeah. in one fell swoop, I just <laughs> skipped every rung on the ladder. Right. And so that was really scary. Um, but they were both really 
wonderful about mm-hmm. supporting me um, and and empowering me so that I would have a voice. And in terms of the process, so Ryan directed the first two episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, and once we went into production on the third, and it was after the first two that we found out that we were picked up to series. Okay. So once we went into production for the remainder of the season, you know, obviously Ryan's running a full empire. And so he was like, well, off to New York you go. And that was my push. And there I was. And, you know, and and to his credit, there were moments on set where, you know, I, I loved my experience on Dead of Summer, but I never had an opportunity to, Mm -hmm. to fly up to Canada to be on set, even when my episode was being produced. And so, um, you know, <laughs> learn as you go. Like you're going to learn how to produce TV on your own show, yeah. um, which is really scary because you might fuck it up. <laughs> um, and so, I remember there was a period, the very beginning of production on on the third episode, um, where everyone kept coming to me with this barrage of questions, <laughs> and it was like at a certain point, I remember there was a very specific question. I, I wish I could remember what it was now, but. Someone had a very specific question and I didn't really have an answer or I did, but I wasn't sure if it was the right answer. And I hadn't really quite learned how to trust my instincts just yet. And I kept calling Ryan and he was not picking up the phone. And I finally just had to make a decision. And I was like, here's what it's going to be. Um, and I remember talking to him about it after the fact. And he was like, well, I-, I had a feeling you were calling with a question and that's why I didn't pick up the phone. Like you just had to learn how to trust your instincts. Right. That and that's a, the job. That was a grasshopper moment. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it again, it, it had to be this insanely fast learning curve for you. Uh, did you know, did you know what this show was? Like, there is so much autobiography in it and there's so much, obviously, invention, but a world that you knew. That's not the same as story necessarily. Correct. Right. So how comfortable were you or how armed were you with story going in and how, how did you feel about like, that story being used up or extended or or whatever you needed it to be. I had a full season Mm -hmm. ready to go. But I mean, again, I, my training was at UCLA. Mm -hmm. I went through the the MFA screenwriting program. And so we spend a lot of time, not just breaking story and then executing those scripts, but also talking about season arcs and then writing Bibles for those shows that you're crafting while you're in the program. And so I left equipped with, Great. A Bible as well as a pilot. Right. Um, it obviously shifted significantly once I met Ryan. Yeah. And I will say to his credit, the original draft that I wrote was written for Showtime or HBO. You know, like I imagined right. it being really gritty. It was, I mean, like there was still levity to it because you can't write about the ballroom culture and <laughs> not have there be, you know, humor embedded in that. But it was... You know, I think The Wire is is a show that was definitely mm-hmm. at the forefront for me when thinking about what I wanted mm-hmm. the original version of Pose to look like, mm-hmm. how what I wanted it, the, the texture of the show. Interesting. And then I meet Ryan, who, in the midst of, and it's interesting because I think most people would assume, particularly if you've watched like American Horror Story, they would think that his sensibility is more, you know, it's dark and very baroque. And <laughs> the reality is that he actually has a lot of lightness in him, and you see that in shows like Glee, for yeah. example. And so. I want to say we wrote three or four drafts, three or four very different drafts of the post pilot before we landed on the one that we ultimately shot. Um, And it was in the midst of sort of, we were actually writing the second episode at this point. um, And Ryan pulled me aside and said, you know, there's a joy that you have about being 
a queer person of color living in this country, you know, growing up in New York. Hmm. Um, and I want to see and feel that joy on the page. And I think that's really where the story yeah. cracked open. And I mm. think, I mean, it was always going to be a family drama, mm-hmm. um, but drama with like a capital D. <laughs> and then <laughs> Ryan and I have that conversation that's and funny. suddenly it's the version that you have now, which is, you know, there's just a lot more yeah. love and aspiration and hope embedded in the narrative. And I think it's part of what people love about the show too. Like it's mm-hmm. so surprising to me here to me to hear that that wasn't baked in from the very beginning, that that kind of positivity and joy and humor wasn't always such a huge part of it. Yeah, no, I mean, I I think that my experience growing up obviously really impacts and shapes Mm -hmm. my sensibility as a storyteller. And I think that I, part of it is... (laughs) Like, I love to laugh and I think I'm a really fun person. But the reality (laughs) is, like, as much as I love storytelling and specifically screenwriting, uh, you know, it's still a job and Mm -hmm. I take it very seriously. And so I think anything that I take very seriously, it's like, it has to be serious. So, you know, everything I put on the page was always really heavy and really dark and... Again, drama with a capital D. And it's like, okay, you can lighten up. Right. (laughs) You know, like and some of the best dramas they allow you to laugh occasionally. Absolutely. These these things can be all the things. Um and I'll say that's in large part because of Twin Peaks. Mm -hmm. You know, like they're I'm probably the first to say there was nothing like it on television before. before. (laughs) Um, But it really, you know, paved the way for the kinds of storytelling that we all could get away with. Right. It didn't have to be one thing. Was that, I mean, again, I know having uh, David Lynch involved was incredibly helpful to moving that forward. But like, what were the conversations around what this is going to be, what the tone is, what kind of stories we're going to tell? ABC wanted Peyton Place. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Funny. And, and they they actually said go back and watch the movie cool. not, the, not necessarily the the show that was on abc in the 60s right. was a huge hit and i think it was stripped over a few nights which is something that only happened a few times mm-hmm. in, in that era um and the movie was just a dead artifact it did not breathe at all it was a, a corpse that was yeah. we, we we turned it off after about <laughs> half an hour uh-huh. um it's it's it was a relic of another age yeah and um uh, we said, well, screw that. That's not what we're doing. And I, I told David a, a story about uh, the death of a girl that I'd heard uh, when I was a kid in upstate New York um, from about 1908. David Bushman's writing another book about this story, I- The Murder of a Girl Named Hazel Drew. And I said, what if you could take that as your organizing incident and literally begin the show um, and use that? It was a very convenient way to get to story exposition sure. character i mean it, it was a skeleton key to unlock the town and um but from there i said i want the show to be subversive mm-hmm. I, I was not a huge i mean although i'd worked a lot in it i wasn't a big fan of most network television i mean it's kind it, of a fallow time too it, and it was this was just at the you know dynasty and yeah dallas and falcon crest and yeah. the you know the nighttime kind of big campy 80s nighttime soap yeah. and um and not that long removed from battle of the network stars so <laughs> yeah. you know we we i i felt we could do something kind of in the side door subversively <laughs> and get at the the reality of what it's like in a small town not just the you know the the cliches that we'd seen on television for right. uh, 30 years at that point so that was the my 
uh, my mission statement. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then it was just about, you know, building that one scene, one character, one cast mm-hmm. at a time. Um, and then we had the great template of the pilot, you know, mm-hmm. to where the world was established, where, um, uh, the lives were set in motion. And then we, we went from, from there onward and strange things happened. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Was, Cause I, it's crazy for me to think about Twin Peaks existing even on today's ABC. <laughs> yeah. So you go yeah. back to it's like, insane. It's, it just <laughs> doesn't make any sense. And so I want, and obviously we didn't have this huge proliferation of, of streamers or, right. you know, basic cable or, or premium cable either. Yeah. So I wonder, was there ever a world or a time where you figured, let me save this story. Hmm. Let me put this away and wait for television to right. catch up. TV's not ready for this thing um, that's in my brain. I yeah. felt that the show had enough conventions in it that hmm. it could it could be mistaken for a network show. <laughs> um, and I, uh, the other thing that worked in our favor was ABC had been mired in last place for yeah. a number oh, of seasons, and they were freaking desperate. They were willing to take a big. Right. Yeah, they would have done they to. anything to to and and still. They had to be dragged, kicking and screaming to a green light. It was only because it tested through the roof. Uh, their marketing people didn't know what to do with it. If I could show you the first set of promos, you probably saw them yeah. that ABC oh came up God. with. Um, it, it was it was like they were trying to sell Marcus Welby on the <laughs> Twilight Zone. You know, that, that we're, ooh, let's put quote marks around how strange everything is. Right. And... Um, uh, uh, no, we, we were saying this is the reality of this place and it's the reality that a lot of people live and then there's a kind of surreal uh, undercurrent to it and, and, a, and a Jungian kind of ocean that it swims in and frankly, that's the ocean we all swim in. So we yeah. felt dream sequences and all those things were going to make sense. Mm. I, I mean, I was, you know, I, you don't have to know what David's bona fides are for that stuff, but I'd grown up with Louis Benwell and mm-hmm. Um, Salvador Dali and I worked in an art house cinema in, in high school and I'd seen um, L- uh, Le Chien Andalou you know I'd, I mean I'd, uh, I sure. I was I was down for that yeah. and and that was part of what I liked about the show was that there were no boundaries uh, once you crack open the human psyche and you get inside a community the show can go anywhere right. but, but was, what's weird about it is that it, it was singular not just in a network context but among just the business. Totally. I, I remember watching the very first episode, the pilot at my house with a bunch of writers, several of whom, by the way, are from the Botchko camp. They all oh. worked on LA Law. Yeah. And when it was over, they were sort of angry. It was like, there was this, there was this feeling of like, what just happened? Right? They were not pleased. And mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and it was just a very weird thing because we didn't fit, right? And what was thought we to were, be television. We I remember were, when we went to the Emmys and yeah. we were kind of huddled on this side of the stay of the <laughs> of the lobby. And on the other side of the lobby were 30 something, right. a name a show. They're China all over Beach, there because yeah, they all know each other. Same high five, right. And we're just going, <laughs> oh we're so, God. we don't belong here, do we? <laughs> and as we found out that night, we didn't. But we did <laughs> but it was just, it was, it was singular in a way that it, I mean, I think the world sort of caught up. I and mean, you're right. I mean, we all, everyone talks about how it's inspired things. But, but yeah, the fact that it came out then to me is a miracle. But there's also, and, and you can probably speak to this, Harley, of that like in the town at the time, I feel like we get things now and Pose is one of them and like Atlanta's one of them and like uh, um, Pen15 is one of them, which we were, we were talking about previously, yeah. that like r- writers see the, these things and go, oh, we can do that? I didn't know that was allowed. Yeah. Like 
it seems like Twin Peaks did not have that effect. It was a no, lot of people really going, didn't. I mean, those are the weird kids. First of all, shows that are singular like that are mm-hmm. increasingly rare because everyone's doing everything. Absolutely. Right. But Pose is one of those shows, mm-hmm. right? For it, sure. It's just singular. Like the yeah. experience yeah. that you're having is different. And, but with Twin Peaks, because it took place in the world of Battle of the Network Stars and all this <laughs> weird bullshit, that it was, there was this weird attitude about, oh, you guys think you're so smart, right? Or hmm. even, or even worse, well, it's, it's cheating because David Lynch is a movie director and mm-hmm. the pilot was two hours long and that's cheating yeah. i mean whatever I hearing that even yeah, as oh, yeah. a kid yeah. when it was on yeah like, it was this doesn't count yeah, little did the, they know that now you need a big huge well, film director well, to go to show yes, little did we know that's any, the only way but now. anytime you come in and upset the status quo like that in any system the system's going to react that way yeah. they see it as a pathogen that's invading their space hmm. and and maybe endangering their livelihood uh, so right. it's, well, it's it, a lot of fear. What does right? it feel like now, though, for you to assess the current TV landscape where that's everything that you are battling <laughs> against is now what everybody's asking yeah, for, what everyone wants? Yeah, that, and you know? and um, I mean, that's the thing. If, if there was an outcome, or if there was a cause and effect, that's the thing I'm happiest about. That if we were able to to break those conventions and and show what what straw men they were, that they, it was simply people's suppositions about what people were ready for instead of the reality yeah. uh then i'm i couldn't be happier and i'm a delighted follower of all the shows that yeah have come along that have been i remember hearing joss that. whedon quoted yeah. as saying the two shows he wished hmm. he could have staffed were the simpsons and twin peaks so i yeah. get that you know that i mean that experience and the way that it kind of moved every, everything forward in a way i mean it moved everything forward and then but not so fast really well not that i mean well, the, sure the really, 90s you know, that's was what a happened. kind of yeah. they, they really wanted to drown the baby in the bathtub abc was a very conservative company it was yeah. before disney yeah. had bought it it was cap cities where Bob Iger came over to run that the network for them before Disney came in. And um, I remember meeting Tom Murphy, I think his name was, who was the CEO, um, who looked at me like I was an alien life form. And um, one of those handshakes, just like he was trying to reach all the way across the room so he didn't have to stand too close. And, and the show made them exceedingly uncomfortable. Um, and they and there were some uh, minor uh, execs at ABC who were literally out to do whatever they could to kill it. There was a guy named yeah, whose name who shall go unnamed. But, um, I'll take my answer. Well, off. There was yeah. one who famously walked out of a screen. Yeah, you, that's the one you yeah, remember. Who said this um, will it'll destroy everything we know and love? It's and, it's this like is you know. Crazy. It, I, it, I, but I but I think look, writing is about confronting the status quo mm-hmm, sure. and breaking convention and trying to move into areas where people can hear ideas that change their minds, that change their hearts, that change the way they feel about their fellow human beings. That's what, at its best, that's what writing aspires to. So why not shoot for that in the work yeah. that you do? It's what you've done in your show. Uh, I'm enormously um, drawn to that world that you've created and those people and the way you've blended the personal and the political yeah. in a way that I think is unique. Um, to modern television that's uh, characters usually exist outside of yeah. living in touch with what's really going on in the world and and you've succeeded in in blending that so uh, more power to you did you get well, pushback uh, on that was yeah. that hard at times or was ryan someone who could be helpful in that regard i mean the political aspects of it was that did anyone ever say to you well maybe not so fast i'm just no, curious i actually think that was the thing that ryan was super attracted to when we first mm-hmm. met because when i went in and i pitched the series to him i said um, my original vision 
for the series was that every season was going to be one year in the life of these characters wow. starting yeah. in 1985 and so what was happening socio-politically in right. new york city was mm-hmm. always going to be the backdrop um for for the show awesome oh, interesting. 1986 was when i first met donald trump at a party in <laughs> hell's kitchen no right. kidding yeah so I, I you put me right back there thinking about that's a little bit like, that's a little <laughs> bit like meeting hitler in art oh, class it was it was you it had was an like, opportunity uh, exactly can little I, did can you I borrow know. some charcoal <laughs> that's right. yeah. Um, but I think what what both of you did on these shows and what you've all done in in your work is get to a basic human truth, mm-hmm. right? And then we sort of slap art on top of that. And that's what makes art, right? We put metaphor on top of it. We extend it into whether it's surreality and dream sequence, whether it's history and politics or the personal, whatever it is, we're getting at some basic human ideas. Um, and it seems like you, from the very beginning on Twin Peaks, knew this was what you wanted to write about. Well, this was the world I was brought up in. My dad was the stage manager on Philco Playhouse. So he worked with all those great writers from Patty mm. Chayefsky to Reginald Rose oh, wow. to Rod Serling, everybody who was turning those shows out every week. Yeah. And he was working with Sidney Lumet and John Frankenheimer and Delbert Mann and the list goes on and on. Oh, so wow. my earliest memories are stumbling around backstage in New York where they were filming. So- I was I was brought up in that tradition, and I mm. and I I think I learned most pointedly from the socially conscious movies of the '60s, mm-hmm. oh, uh, sure. uh, and New York in particular. You know, was producing those sor- sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, Seven Days in May, Failsafe. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, advising consent. There was um, um, Splendor in the Grass. You know, it was a very rich period. Mm. Wow. Um, and that was the idealism that I. Uh, had about storytelling that, that carried me forward. To Kill a Mockingbird, I saw when I was nine years old and it changed my life. Sure, you know? yeah. um, so that's what I wanted to do in television. And believe me, when I got to Universal in the 70s, that that wouldn't happen. And, <laughs> not uh, on the six million not where they were. It was, you know, what was that show with uh, Bob Conrad and the fighter pilots in World War II? Oh my God, I don't um, The Black Sheep Squadron that, you know, they were doing. Oh, it, it's, it was a big hit. It was a Don Belisario show. Oh, wow. They were doing, you know, Stephen Bochco was doing Macmillan and Wife mm-hmm. at that time and Columbo and and right. uh, the, the uh, was it Dennis Weaver had a show called McLeod. Right. Oh, yeah. So it was a, they would do a different 90 minute show every three weeks. Yeah. Um, and uh, that was sort of hidebound stuff. It was doctors and lawyers and mysteries right. and the usual, the usual stuff. It was great for the business and the bottom line. I'm sure, uh, you know, they weren't complaining, um, but it wasn't moving the ball. Right. It wasn't saying anything. It wasn't uh, creating anything new. Yeah, Um, shows that broke that mold tended to come and then vanish immediately. I remember when I was very young, there was a show called Then Came Bronson starring Michael, Michael Parks, Parks. who was later in Twin Peaks. And Thinkin Bronson was a guy in his motorcycle riding across America. And that's all he did for one season, right? And every week there'd be some amazing character actor, young Ned Beatty, all these actors you, you came to know later. And it was very dramatic, very Playhouse 90. It was very mm-hmm. sort of steeped in those traditions. And it was somebody from that era who created yeah, the shows. Yeah, and it was, and it was, and I just remember being a kid going, oh my God, this is what I want to see because nothing else on television was like it. Yeah. And it was, and it's, and of course, it left almost immediately yeah well <laughs> that last. that in turn was, was inspired by route 66 this yeah of was, course uh, it yeah. was route 66 with half the budget it was just <laughs> yeah. one guy and a motorcycle instead of two in a corvette but, but it sounds like it was ambitious too like well, it, well, thematically it to absolutely yeah. yes yeah. because and they're the, trying to do a, a one-act play or whatever totally. exactly and it was anthology based mm-hmm. which sure. is what uh that 
generation had done in yeah. the 50s. So, you know, every once in a while that gets tried and comes yeah. back. And yeah. I actually did a misbegotten remake of Route 66 at NBC. Oh, wow. Right. Six whole oh. episodes. When was this? And this was would have been in the 90s after Twin Peaks. Yeah. And and I worked with um, Burt Leonard, who had created the original. And Burt Leonard, rest in peace, was a wonderful man who was baked 24-7. And he was awesome <laughs> in meetings as a result. But he loved to tell stories. And he would tell stories about him and Sterling Siliphant, who was the master behind the show, right, yeah. the writer. And they would be shooting. And, and the thing about this show is it was all over America. And you would watch it and feel that in yeah. a way that you wouldn't yeah. with those backlot shows. So they would be doing a show at Hoover Dam. Right, and they'd be shooting it at Hoover Dam. Well, meanwhile, Sterling Silphant would be driving around, and he'd see like a, a union battle going on in some little town, and go, "You know what? I'm going to do this episode. story." And so then he'd get out the typewriter, and he would write, oh and then gosh. production would follow him around. <laughs> and Bert told these great stories about these kind of cowboys, kind of you know going across the country, t- just doing storytelling, almost oh. guerrilla filmmaking. Yeah, in it a really way. was yeah. in, in a crazy, crazy Can way. Can we make but, that show? Oh, yeah. The making of Route 66. Oh, let me tell you. And of course, when we did the remake, we were, you know, shooting in, in Valencia, for, Valencia for <laughs> Idaho, right? It yeah. was like we yeah. weren't going anywhere. Right. Um, but I remember him telling those stories very wistfully, you know, it was sure. like we, they were very young and that's they had wild. this, yeah, that they were having this great time. And that's, because <laughs> that's a trick too, I think sometimes is you talked about, you want to get to writing special things and getting deep into material. But sometimes you're working on a show where that's not the intention. And I've done those. Sure. And so then your job is within those scenes to try to find those same yeah. things. And, well, and what has that been for you? What are some of the shows where you've been able to either put your stamp on it or tell the personal story? I don't know if it's about whatever stamp. It is. I mean, it's, you know, it's like Project Blue Book is something I mm-hmm. just finished up not so long ago. And that's a show that has a very basic week to week template, right? And it's like, there's a UFO. Oh, it's swamp gas. Oh, it's not. <laughs> so you're sort of done. Right. And so what you want to do is try to find for me, it was always character moments. You want to try to find character moments that have some truth in them. And particularly because it was taking place in the 50s, you could even find political aspects of it, which was certainly happening then. And, you know, you try to sneak it in basically. And sometimes it gets there and sometimes it doesn't. It just mm-hmm. depends. Some shows are more designed. I mean, that's like something like sure. Pose. What a great opportunity because you know going in what you get to see and talk about and investigate. Yeah. Um, but other shows don't offer that opportunity necessarily. So then your job as a writer is to try to find those moments that have some kind of truth in them or a good joke in them or mm-hmm. whatever. But for me, that's, you know, that's something, particularly as I've done so many shows lately, that that's what I found myself doing. Yeah. I mean, I think that's that's kind of up to the showrunner too, right? Is about how much a writer on staff gets to talk about what he or she cares about, talk about, yeah. tell his or her story on the show, right? Like I think about something like The X-Files where that was, again, is a very standard uh, yeah. template of a thing, but it feels like those writers had the chance to tell stories that they wanted to Yeah, it's to an tell. all-star team too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, yeah, it was absolutely an all-star team. Um, I'm curious to hear about that from from both of you about, giving that opportunity to other writers to make sure that their stories are told or that they get to tell stories that they want to tell. I mean, in the case of Pose, I think to address something you just said, Harley, like the personal is political. Um, and so obviously on a show like Pose where so much of the narrative is about identity, mm-hmm. um, you know, it would be fraudulent for us to tell this story and not have individuals who hold those identities in the writer's room you know so in our writer's room we have our lady j who's a writer on transparent and then we have janet mock who was um had an msnbc show and wrote um two really great memoirs um they were invited into the room Mm -hmm. and 
um, not just because they're incredible storytellers, but also because they happen to identify as, sure. as trans women and our show was going to be centering trans women of color. And so that was critically important. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, I think when you have a, a small room where outside of Brad Falchuk, who we jokingly always say is like our token straight white guy, <laughs> right. where everyone else in the room though holds the identities of the characters that you're seeing yeah. on screen, every conversation in our room is personal. Sure. Well, mm-hmm. And do you feel yeah. a- along the same lines, like from a structural point of view, does, does Pose have an engine to you? Like, is there a template to which you have to keep or, or is it like Twin Peaks was where it felt like you could kind of dip in and out of these lives without that kind of engine? I, I I would say that ooh, that's an interesting question because <laughs> I can't tell watching the show. Like I'm along for the ride, but I I can't quite take it apart. Yeah, that's really fascinating because I, I I think maybe for the nascent storyteller, the engine would be the mm. ball, right? Sure, and, and I would course. I would argue yeah. like if in, and the we see that in the first season, season. Yeah. obviously, right? Like our engine is is Blanca putting his family together right. and then eventually becoming mother of the year. Um, at the end of the first season, I would say now in our third season, it's interesting. You know, the I, I would argue that the engine is this desire to find a cure for HIV. Hmm. Wow, um, survival, and it's all about yeah. it's all baked right. in survival, and yeah. really it comes what the back show to is a about. theme, right? Yeah, yeah this theme what the of, show's of, about this aspirational theme of mm-hmm. just wanting yeah. to live a life bigger than than what you are are, yeah. and what's you know, obviously really heartbreaking about that is that we know now, you know, present day that we still have not found a cure. And so that it's this, this hope and this desire that these characters have, that's never going to come to to fruition. The dramatic irony sort of. Yeah. Well, tragedy really. Yeah. That's Um, along the same lines, you know, as we started talking about Twin Peaks, it was clear that, you know, you knew what the show was. There was room to explore. I'm curious to hear if whether it was, you know, drafts you wrote yourself or things you got from some of the writing staff were there instances when you were thought to yourself like this is too far for twin peaks or this is not far enough for twin peaks this doesn't this isn't what twin peaks is uh it was usually more the latter than the former Mm -hmm. i mean uh because people would come in harley was the exception because he hadn't been sort of brainwashed by television (laughs) at that point he was willing to you know um Swing for the fences, as you mm-hmm. as you put it, and um, so you had to push people in that direction. Interesting. Um, and then we had uh, one regrettable episode in the in the second year, uh, who uh, a writer who will remain nameless. Oh, that's right. Uh, who was famous for writing a very explicit memoir about his days as a drug addict, um, and had, had been um, urged uh, by one of the right. agents to come do an episode of the show. And he, without telling us, was still using. In fact, he was using in our bathroom in oh between breaks. And uh, and he didn't turn in a draft. He turned in 12 pages that were bloodstained. Um, it was insane. Oh my God. So that was uh, one experience that- uh, That's nothing about two weeks, by the way. A lot of freelance writers contributed to that show. Yeah, they did. Right, in other words, it was yeah. a very small group of people who you would call staff. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing I would say too that, and this might be on some level relevant, is that I've worked, I usually come in as a number two on the shows. I'm like, here I'm trying to right. develop over here, but the shows I'm staffing, I'm always the number two, which is a great job because it's a lot less work, let me <laughs> tell you. But the point is, is that as the number two, you really see up close and personal how the showrunner handle things. Mm-hmm. And in particular, the way they rewrite. 
And mm-hmm. I've seen shows, I've seen staffs completely sort of decimated in a way when the showrunner just rewrites because they can. Yeah. Not because they need to. It's just because oh, I had time tonight. I'm going to change this scene. And we'd be in circumstances where writers would come to me because I'm the number two and say, look, the studio said they love this scene and now mm. it's completely different. And I said, yeah. And those are shows as a writer you don't want to work on. And working for someone like Mark, what's great is that you know that if you nail something, it's going to be there the next hmm. day. You know that your best work is respected. In my case, because I was young and stupid, I would tend to write five-page soliloquies <laughs> that Mark would have to kind of weed down. Right. Um, but you were in the right three place pages for it. Was fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Three pages was fine. So, but the nice thing was, was knowing that your work is going to be in that sense respected, you know, mm-hmm. and, and even, sure. and it also goes to that old Sharner thing about there are those who take screen credit and those who don't. And that to me is a very big issue because I think as, as a showrunner, you shouldn't, mm-hmm. right? It's your job to do that rewriting, right? But that's another thing that there are certain showrunners who seem to have different staffs every year. Well, that's in part because they're taking all the credit. They're taking money out of yeah. their pockets yeah. just to be more you know, literal about it. Yeah. But so that that's a big deal, I think. And I think for showrunners, that's a it's a tricky thing because of course you want the show to be the best you, know, you think and your own personal experience may feel like it's going to make it better or more accurate mm-hmm. or whatever, but you know. Something yeah, that, that was something I learned from Bochco that, mm-hmm. um, you, you know, it, but it's also common sense. The people you're working with need to feel appreciated and be happy sure. and uh, feel understood. And writers are sensitive and sometimes uh-huh. odd people, you know, and you have to be able to know where they are and, and inspire them in some way to work collectively. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a very unusual thing for writers who are generally solitary mm-hmm. creatures um TV so writing is a team sport yeah, yeah. exactly yeah, exactly um but that's also the joy of it because uh you've got people there to uh, share your triumphs and your sorrows and your frustrations and to help you um solve these problems that sometimes seem intractable so it's a it's a fine balance yeah i'm curious to hear you know about creating that target for your writers and like Harley I'll ask this to you first since you've written on a bunch of shows but specifically say on Twin Peaks where it's a show with a strong authorial voice um, how do you as a writer step into that voice because clearly you know Mark as, as the showrunner was happy with the job you did yeah I mean Twin Peaks is really I think singular because in particular you have Agent Cooper so that's the most specific kind of voice mm-hmm. as a writer you could ever have as a challenge so I wrote I said after begging to write an episode Mark said okay you can write this episode <laughs> and that's what I wanted to focus on and that's what was really important to me can I give an example of yeah, something please. Harley Harley nailed in that regard um uh, the great Miguel Ferrer, the late great mm-hmm. Miguel Ferrer. I had known since 1974. Uh, the first show I ever worked on was a show called Sunshine mm-hmm. um, about a young f- father who had, was widowed and raising his child and also hmm. in a rock band. And the rock band lived in a van and Billy, <laughs> Billy Mummy was the, the driver and the oh guitar player. And Miguel Ferrer was the drummer in the <laughs> band. He was the son, obviously, of Jose and Rosemary yeah. Clooney. And he, he had already drummed professionally with Bing Crosby. He was a great drummer. What? Wow. Nobody know knows that. this about That's him. That's crazy. So I had known Miguel all this time, and, and he wasn't in the first two hours. And I said, I want to introduce a character, uh, a, a forensic expert, because uh, I wanted to flip the chemistry of the FBI guy and the local guy, hmm. which is usually a, a bullshit conflict of interest, and make them buddy-buddy. But I needed a... a uh, uh, <laughs> some sand in the ointment, you know, and along came 
Albert Rosenthal, and Harley oh. wrote the first episode that he was right. in, and he nailed the voice. Hmm. That was, I think it was episode three. Cruelly which was your... insulting. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah, but also- I, I was the go-to guy for, go back to your sure. portion, resume whittling. <laughs> I was like- You know, I, and- I You just, have those ready to go. It was <laughs> a marriage of voice and actor no. that just resonated. Sure. And um, so, yeah, so Albert was, was- Was the voice discussed prior to- the script, though? I just said, make him the most abrasive person okay. you can possibly think of. <laughs> yeah. And I know you're well-equipped to do that. <laughs> but there, um, And you brought so much character to that. And obviously, yeah. Miguel brought the rest of the character right. to Yeah, that. I mean, you get a chance to create something like that or start with something like that. And yeah. that's a great opportunity. And then even totally. trying to match Cooper, which was so mm -hmm. specific. I remember doing that first script and just fingers crossed, man. I mean, I'm like, you know, yeah. and my phone rang at like midnight. And it was Mark saying, just read it. This is awesome. Do you want to do another one? And I was like... <laughs> well, it was such a relief to find someone else who could help you. You know, I mean, we had a short order, you know, that we had mm -hmm. done uh, the two hour pilot and they, they gave us uh, six, six more hours or five more hours. Yeah. Um, no, it was six. It was six. Because it was seven altogether. Was, okay. um, so it wasn't that much, but it was still, uh, you know, production wise, it was a, a lot to do. So having, you know, uh, if I was going to be Ahab, he was going to be Starbuck and this was going to work <laughs> out. And, it, and, you know, it did. Yeah. because of that yeah, yeah, yeah. i think uh, to your point though like finding a character's voice is again similar to what we we're saying about being in a writer's room yeah. it really yeah. is a collaborative effort yeah in the same way that you know i think you watch any show i don't care how great the show is in the first season you're always sort of finding your voice and air quotes right yeah. mm -hmm. um and finding your sea legs and i think with pose we had an idea of where we were going and mm. who these characters were but if you go back to the pilot, for example, like Billy Porter, who is now like a supernova. <laughs> he's so subdued. He's barely in the pilot, yeah, right? Yeah. He just has a couple of scenes. I had a question yeah. for you. The The opening scene, which is beautiful, the and it sets the, the show in such an emotional context. Uh, I had the feeling that you might have written that later than a lot of the rest of the pilot. Or was that your first scene to begin with from the start? Or was no, it that something? was always the first scene. Oh, yeah. That's cool. We always that's knew cool. we were going to open up with this. Because you really, uh, I mean, Museum it was a brilliant heist. opening <laughs> note. What, a, what about know? it made Thanks. you think maybe it was added later? Uh, I'm curious about your it story. Because I, I thought, um, this is so right. Yeah. And it, it I wondered, characters. I, I, I didn't think it, I just wondered, was this yeah. where you started or did, did it come to you a little later mm -hmm. in the process? It was just, I was curious to know because it sets the... Uh, the table and opens yeah. the curtains and you're ready to watch. And, and it feels was, like and those that characters. Was all Ryan Murphy, I will say. Oh, really? uh -huh. Initially, I th we were going to really sort of plant the narrative in Damon, who's a young man who's kicked mm -hmm. out of his home and then moved yeah. to New York. And, oh. um, and Ryan had a conversation because we had a lot of uh, consultants that first season and um, several of the men who had performed in the ballroom scene in the 80s talked about breaking into this museum <laughs> in new york and stealing oh, yeah. all this finery oh, to perform <laughs> and so ryan was like that's yeah, that's it How do you like, not? that's the opening and yeah. what a beautiful way to introduce the world yeah. and the characters and who they are and yeah, what they're all totally. about but to go back to what i was saying about billy i think you know he that character pray tell he's he's really just the mc in yeah. the pilot mm -hmm. right and and then it, over the course of shooting a couple of episodes, you spend time with the cast and you start talking to them about yeah. who they are and what their 
own individual hopes and desires and dreams are and you start to listen to because it's very musical the rhythm of mm-hmm. their voice yeah, yeah. and then Absolutely. how that changes and the pitch modulates when they're on set playing the character and then somehow these characters just open up in a whole new way right and so so much of what we've done with that character in particular is a combination of really all of us in the room hmm sort of having an idea of where we want the character to go and then also just sort of paying attention to what Billy brings yeah. to a character yeah. or what any of the actors yeah. bring. You know? That's you know, such an exciting part of it's, it. Well, it's so great. I mean, I, I had grown up in the theater, you know, and was a, a theater major so um, and come from a family of actors. So I've, I've always been acutely aware of you, you need the the flesh and bones to to make these words real. And, uh, and you've learned very early on that, that's really finally the lifeblood of the show. People have mm-hmm. to l- like those people or be interested enough to watch them. They don't have to like them, but they, they need to feel compelled yeah. that, that what they're going Absolutely. through is something they're interested in. And, and that's casting is a big part of television yeah. mm-hmm. and it's underrepresented as, as uh, a topic because no, I think it's huge. Um, it's, true. it's, it's really huge. everything. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you. And then, and then I'll ask a question and maybe I'll cut this out. Is there a way to mark this? Um, <laughs> I'm rewatching Cheers right now (laughs) Uh, and I'm five, six seasons in and like this is where you see this kind of chemistry, right? Like this kind of casting, this kind of chemistry, you can't, you can't uh, uh, manufacture it. Yeah. Right. There's some magic to that. I'm curious to hear about discoveries made along the way on Twin Peaks and, you know, whether it is something, you know, learning from the actors learning from the other writers well the three characters that immediately come to mind of course are um cheryl lee and laura Mm -hmm. who was originally just going to be a corpse you know and be seen in a few video uh flashbacks but we all fell in love with her and i then i I introduced the idea of the identical twin cousin coming back and then you know because of the dream world nature and the sort of orpheus and the underground um life that Laura lived after death, uh, she became really a huge part of the fabric of the show. That That's one example. The other two were um, Michael Horse, who, mm-hmm. who plays Deputy Hawk, who wasn't even in the original pilot. Mm. Um, and he was an afterthought. He was like the third deputy from the left. But <laughs> after meeting Michael, who is an authentic character, <laughs> and, and I've always, I've loved old Hollywood people for my whole life. And I've worked with a lot of them. And it's a joy mm-hmm. and michael has been through it all he played tonto in that first god-awful i forget the character the actor's name the first lone ranger oh my God, that was done way back when that was a disaster clayton clayton um claymore uh no clayton uh, clayton moore was the original okay. guy but i can't remember the name of the guy yeah. who played the lone ranger neither can anybody else it's a mystery so michael um uh, would would lobby me he'd come in and he'd you know i think we could do more with him and <laughs> and and honestly the 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 native american quality that is in the the pacific northwest mm-hmm. made complete sense to make him a voice that emerged Absolutely. as yeah. uh, being instrumental to it and the third was rust hamlin <laughs> as dr jacoby who had one line in the pilot but we had already cast Richard Beamer, and when Russ came in to meet with us, I I just couldn't resist it. I said, "West Side Story lives, <laughs> and we're putting these two guys in the show, and then I'm going to figure out who Doctor Jacoby is." And because of Russ's presence, and because he's just a genius human being, and just just easy to love, and um, 
I adore him. I mean, he's one of my favorite people on, that I've ever worked with or known. Um, he became that character. He Russ is that guy. <laughs> so those are the three that come to mind. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, and it's funny, I mean, not that any of the characters on the show don't pop, but you can see that those characters, like, there's something special to them. And, and it's weird. The thing that really made it work for David visually was um, they had costumed Russ with orthopedic green shoes, <laughs> which were even were below camera level. But he did this little dance step. He's one of the great dancers of the 20th century. Sure. So he did this little dance step. He's about to get in an elevator. And David said, get that. <laughs> and that became the moment when Dr. Jacoby came to life. It was because he was wearing these weird shoes. <laughs> so hilarious. you never know where of it's going to come from. Yeah. I'm curious, did, did Billy Porter walk in the door or did you go forget him? In other words, was that an audition where he was coming in to read? How did that work? Because it's He auditioned. And, and it's interesting because he tells, the way that he tells the story is that he <laughs> was brought in to play the dance teacher. Oh, Okay. Um, who, who ultimately huh. was played by Charlene Woodard. Mm -hmm. From my perspective, that I didn't know. Right. So I'm assuming that our casting director, Alexa Fogel, who worked on um, The Wire and, and oh, wow. more recently Ozark and Atlanta, I'm guessing there were conversations she must have had sure. with, you know, with the actors prior to bringing them in. But um, from my perspective, in the room when we talked about this character, it was always going to be Billy. Yeah. Ryan was like, I think Billy Porter would be really great for this character. So when we met with him in New York, when we met with all of the potential cast members and, and ultimately everyone that we met with, we, we wound up casting for the show. Um, my understanding was always that it was going to be Billy. Right. Sure. I think it, the, the meeting was really a formality. It was, I think, sure. you know, let's just make sure that you can formulate sentences. <laughs> right. and you're yeah, yeah. About the, the material. Right. Um, Cause you I'm can sorry. just from, watching the tapes you could see how important this material was particularly yeah. for all of the the ladies that we cast right sure. because i think yeah. you know especially for a black or latin trans woman it's like when do you ever get an opportunity to yeah. to Absolutely. be on television and play a character it's like you know even post pose they're still waiting yeah, for opportunities <laughs> yeah. um you have to carry that for a little bit unfortunately <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and it's one of the reasons why I think ultimately I have a hard time patting myself on the back when it comes to the show. I get it. You know, I think people, I get that, you know, the show is, is critically beloved and we've received accolades and all of that's really nice. But, you know, at the end of the day, like I wrote the show specifically because there was a, there was a gap in programming you know, and I was like, I'm going to come in and fill that gap, <laughs> you know, specifically because that's what I used to do when I worked in, I worked in higher education for 10 years. Mm -hmm. Right. And so as a college administrator, like mm -hmm. a large part of my role yes. working on campuses was to identify where there are gaps on campus so that oh, students would have all the resources that they needed for the four or five years that they were on campus. Right. Um, and so I bring that with me into my practice as a storyteller. And so, uh, you know, there's a part of me that feels like while it's wonderful that our cast has this opportunity, I know that behind the gate, yeah. there are still a whole plethora of other really talented yeah. people who are also waiting for their shot yeah. and are not getting it because we work in this really short sighted, you know, Absolutely. and let's just come up with a bunch of, you know, racist, sexist, misogynistic, yeah. homophobic, transphobic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, industry. And so it, it, Again, I'm just I'm hard pressed yeah. 
to be like, woo, I'm so glad that <laughs> yeah. like I'm I'm grateful that Pose exists. Right. And I also will feel like it was all for nothing if there isn't any yeah, there's real progress well, you know, in the industry. Yeah. We right started now. this conversation in part talking about the long tail that Twin Peaks has had, right? It opened the door yeah. for new storytelling because it was daring mm-hmm. uh, and it was singular and it was art. And I think we can have that same conversation about Pose. Yeah. That you know, it might take a little bit, but hopefully we're getting people watching this now and being inspired. And, yeah. you know networks and executives seeing this and going we can do this i didn't realize we were allowed to but do it, this it also yeah, it's, allowed it's, to do it's this. gender and sexual honesty in a way it's like sensate is a show that i really enjoy yeah. Much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and yeah. i thought it had it really got into a lot of that stuff right and and to me that's one of the reasons i wanted to see it because it was a mm-hmm. world that i wasn't familiar with that it was but it was fascinating and i loved the drama of it and the, and the, the emotion of it and everything and it also seemed to be working toward a world that was inclusive mm-hmm. i was like these are all these people who they all belong in this place at this place in time I wish I could take you with me to go back in time to <laughs> the room at ABC when I explained to them that we were going to introduce the first trans character in network television That's history. That's right, David Duchovny. When, uh, with the David Duchovny character. Mm-hmm. And the uh, if we hadn't had that firewall of no interference, they threatened holy hell if we went through with this character. And um, it's great to see now the openness, or at least receptivity right. mm-hmm. to other kind of stories that have come along and people whose stories need to be told. Yeah. Um, and then we were lucky that David Duchovny had gone on 75 auditions and never booked one. Um, and literally this was his first job. Um, Is that right? On Twin Peaks. I didn't that. And he was, uh, he's such a great guy and he came he back and did the return, right. you know, when we, yeah. we had him now heading the FBI. So it was a great story arc for him. And, uh, and he was, uh, couldn't wait to come back and do the character because mm-hmm. it, it had meant so much to him early on in his life. Sure. Sure. And um, that was like pushing a door open about three inches and then it was slammed. It was, yeah, right? I mean, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and then I mean, it took yeah. a long time to get to a point Just where even to, or, you know. to mention the yeah. word. And to yeah. uh, and I was a fan of both shows and, and to see how that has changed yeah. is, it's important to- Yeah, it's to, incremental. But it it's, is incremental. Yeah. It feels agonizingly slow, yeah. but compared to where we were, it's- uh, sure. We've come a long way. Well, and I hope that in that incremental shift that the, because the reality is, is like one of my mentors, Neil Landa always says, niche is the new mainstream, that it it stops being niche. Because I'm thinking back to the story he just told about being at the Emmys, right? Right. And I think of a show like (laughs) Sensei, which is beautiful, but was only on for two seasons. That's right. Right. And then canceled. Gone. And there was absolutely an audience for it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so I think what winds up happening is, a lot of these stories, I think it was the experience you had with ABC back in the day when Twin Peaks first, you know, was was produced is that those shows get ghettoized, right? Mm-hmm. So because it's it's yeah. too different. Right, right. Yeah. Right. And it's not seen as in spite of it being subversive and really being at the forefront of yeah. of telling story it's still seen as different. And so it's over there. Yeah. yeah. Right. You know? But also we're talking about, about actors and casting, but what you're doing with writer staff, that's yeah. the, that's the last one. That's true. You know, that's the one. I mean, even shows that are, you know, more open in the way they're depicting the world and the kind of characters that are in there. It's not that long ago when there was just a bunch of white guys in there, mm-hmm. right? Not doing their long. thing. And by the way, doing their thing the best they can. But I mean, the point is you want to bring that into writer's rooms too. It just the, And out of that comes better storytelling. Of course. You, know? yeah. and that's you want like a diversity of voices. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's what you want on every show. 
right? Yeah. And by the way, it's not, I mean, no one is just going to write from their own experience. You just want people right. in a room who have had different experiences right. um, because that's going to yeah. contribute to what you're able to do. Can I say a quick anecdote, which is just last week I was at the final draft awards and Quentin Tarantino was being honored. And he told a story that was specific to the feature world, but I actually think that it has a lot of relevance to the work that we all do on TV, which is he said that he had a meeting with an exec who was talking about how currently um, the scripts that are coming across this particular exec's desk don't seem to be very personal. And it feels like mm. the the new, like the nascent writer, mm -hmm. the person who's moving to LA with like hopes and dreams of launching a career, that they're basically writing what they think is going to be their yeah. calling card or their golden ticket or their way, their entree into the industry. Um, and I, all of that, I get, especially having come out of an MFA program. But the thing that I've learned, especially on this Pose ride, and certainly here listening to, to the both of you speak about your experiences, is that it's so critically important to just write from the heart. Yeah. Like, I just hope that all the writers out there that are listening, just like write the show that no one is knows how to write except yeah. for you like write the show that no one has written before you know like write what you want to see yeah. don't write what you think the industry is asking for um because i think ultimately like that's the big difference between really launching a career and i think yeah. also like opening up the doors that you want to have open up right? right when you're sitting with these execs like the thing that they're most interested in and it took me a really long time to realize that in the two years between my graduating from my program and then selling posed to ryan and to fx was that i kept on trying to sort of be who i th thought networks um. wanted me to be right and so i constantly would go in and i was sort of you want me to be the funny clown great that's what i'll give you because i'm hoping i'm gonna get stopped <laughs> on that comedy but ultimately at the end of the day like p the original draft of pose was was in my portfolio right. as my sample and so it's like who you're telling me you are and what this sample is feels really incongruent, yeah. mm. you know? And so I think it's just really critically important for everyone listening to like, do a gut check. Like, who are you as a storyteller? What are your values? Why did you come to this town in the first place? What are the stories you want to tell? And just put that on the page. Yeah. Uh, listen, this is what we've been trying to get at for 500 episodes. Thank you yeah. for finally saying it. We're done. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have to do this anymore. <laughs> no, but it's true because you'll never have more freedom than when you're yeah. sitting at home, whatever your job might be, and you're writing that first script. Absolutely. There's plenty of time to work and tell other people's stories. And sometimes that's an amazing experience and sometimes it's not, but it's also a job that you do and you need to love it to do it. But there'll never be a, a time when you're more free than when you can start. And I remember my first script was awful because I was trying to hit those. Right. It's called girl school. Um, <laughs> I won't bore you with how awful it was. And then I went, okay, this is getting me nowhere. And I was spending a lot of time in rock and roll clubs in LA, then the Starwood and all these various places. So I decided I'm going to write what it's like to be in those rock and roll clubs. And that will be, and that was the thing that got me all my work for years. It was years. something you cared about. Because it was something I'd experienced mm -hmm. and that yeah. I cared about it was important to me um and it, it, you're so right about that's for people who are looking for that first way in yeah. take advantage of that freedom because yeah. you don't have it forever all right, right? correct we, that's really important <laughs> that's there is a time true. when you simply don't have that freedom yeah uh we do need to wrap up um 
we could go for another couple hours. <laughs> you you all were as awesome as I hoped you'd be. Thank you so much for being here. Um, let's wrap up by asking what you are watching on television these days. What's getting you excited or inspired? What are you talking about with your friends, your loved ones, with the room that you're in? Uh, and Stephen, let's start with you. Um, I just finished binging season two of Sex Education on oh Netflix. You, you took my show. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> Isn't it great? <laughs> It's fantastic. I love it. It's so good. I love it so much. <laughs> so the first season I thought was perfect. Um, and I really loved the second season. Awesome. It was I so can't good. wait to watch. All right. Good answer. We talked about else, The Outsider in the in the hall, mm-hmm. you know, the, the show on HBO. But yeah. I, I I think Sets Education, because in the writer's room on Chucky, I've said to everyone, you've got to watch the show mm-hmm. because it deals with those young lives. And I even realized in writing like a secondary character in Chucky, just an outline form, that I wasn't taking that character's needs and wants seriously. Mm. And a show like Sex Education so shines a light on That's that. Yeah. And if your show is called Sex Education, you better be good about when it comes to sex. They're really good when it comes yeah. to sex. I mean, yeah. it's such a really honest, true way. Yeah. I love that show. Great. Uh, my most recent favorite would be Watchmen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I was uh, astonished that uh, number one Damon was willing to take that on yeah. with the, the 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 kind of freighted expectations that would be laid at your feet, knowing how revered the original is, and. Yeah even the movie and the, but certainly the graphic novel. And I thought he entirely reimagined it in a way that Mm -hmm. made it relevant and made it powerful and made it uh, something I couldn't look away from. Um, Okay, wait, listen, I said I'd let you all go, but (laughs) you brought it up. Two things. Um, One, that weight of expectation is fascinating to me. And Damon's talked a lot about this on other podcasts and it's always interesting, but you came back for Twin Peaks, The Return. Yeah. You contended with a similar thing, I'd wager. How do you push through that? How do you meet that? How do you ignore that? Whatever it is. Uh, ignore it. Uh, and and But the way we dealt with it was we wrote all, however many hours we wrote. We didn't even break it down into hours. Mm-hmm. I mean, we just wrote. It was over 500 pages of material uh, before we even showed it to them. Hmm. I mean, we had, I guess we showed them the first, ostensibly the first two hours. Mm-hmm. Um, so... The, the rule was, forget everything that happened before. 25 years have, have passed. Nothing is the same, although a few things are. And um, and we're going to do a completely different story mm-hmm. hmm. um, and, and tell the truth even more ruthlessly than we did the last time. And... Mm-hmm. And, and on a new network and on, on a new <laughs> yeah. network that uh, is going to equally right. give us the room and the space yeah. to do that. that to recreate that original condition was probably the hardest yeah. hurdle to to get over but um, they were eager to have it mm-hmm. and the, you know I and I'd known uh, David for 20 years and he's a, a dream to work with and um, he said go do it and you know we took that as the uh, uh, the the line to follow right. um, is is that truth telling that you were looking to to do in a new way is that the essential Twin Peaksness of Twin Peaks is well I think it's the say? product of two minds you know mm-hmm. working together um, but we were different we were twenty five years yeah. older and there were different things in our minds and um, we'd been through a lot. Um, uh, so it it was a more a reflection of who we are now as you know inevitably the show the original show was who we were then sure um so i think that's that was all there and i i, I think for that reason it was a very fulfilling experience 
Um, yeah. And then just about Watchmen. Like, do you watch something like that and go, eh, you're welcome? <laughs> no. I mean, I mean, I've talked to Damon. I know, I know that Twin Peaks was formative for him. And, yeah. and um, I mean, he's talked about it. Even but on this I, but honestly, it's, it's, it's not like about passing the baton. Everybody has yeah. a baton. You know, all you need to do is encourage people yeah. and to say, just stand out there in the rain and, you know, lightning will strike you if you wait long enough. Um, and, um, you know, every once in a while it does. And, People do extraordinary things. So um, if we had any hand in helping people go out and stand in the rain, then I'm, <laughs> I'm uh, more than happy about it. Well, we're glad you did. Thank you all for being here. Thank we appreciate you. it. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcast.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook. Ew, ew, ew.